I felt when I was 30 years old and making that transition, like I'd really failed, like it was a failure. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book, as well as artists I love and respect. Our guest today is John Strom from the bands The Blake Babies and The Lemonheads. I still remember when I was a sophomore in college in the very late 80s, and my roommate at the time brought home a copy of The Blake Babies' earwig. From the opening chords of Cesspool, I was hooked, and they pretty much instantly became one of my favorite bands. If I'm being honest, I think we really related to them because they looked like us, they sung about things that we understood, they could be our friends. And as the 90s progressed, more bands seemed to be just like us, but the Blake Babies were kind of at the forefront of that alternative nation thing that was just beginning to take hold. They split up, it seemed, just as we were getting to know them. Singer Juliana Hatfield went on to stratospheric heights for an indie artist. John went on to make several excellent records with the band Antenna, but at a certain point made the transition to becoming a music lawyer and became president of Rounder Records in 2017. John tells us about how that transformation happened. When I was a kid, I, I always knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, which is a working musician, a professional musician, preferably a, a famous professional musician when I was young. And my life was really focused in that direction from a very young age. And I started learning instruments and, and getting bands together very early. By the time I was in high school in, in Bloomington, Indiana, I was a working musician. I was playing gigs and bars. I, I had a hardcore punk band that traveled around the Midwest and really had some momentum with, with music and not much else. I was not a particularly good student and my, my parents are academics and that was very frustrating for them. So when it came time for me to decide what to do for college, and by the way, I lived in a university town and I could have gone to Indiana university for free, but I think they knew, and I knew that I had to get out of town and, and uh, really have a go at trying to be a musician. So I convinced my parents to send me to the Berklee College of Music in Boston. And when I got there, I really got the wheels on, on what I was trying to do with music. I, I figured out the local scene. I met some musicians and, and started playing gigs around town. Uh, within a couple of years of moving to Boston, I'd started my band Blake Babies with Juliana Hatfield and Frida Love who was my high school girlfriend who moved with me. And I was also playing drums in the Lemonheads. And it was a really great time. It was a wonderful scene. We, we had a lot of amazing uh, contemporaries there in Boston. We started traveling around, signed a record deal, deal with Blake Baby, started making records. And I really didn't spend a lot of time in my early 20s uh, wondering what the rest of my life was going to be like. I felt like it was all headed in the direction of building this career around music and that it was going very well. Even though I wasn't wealthy, even though I wasn't particularly well-known or famous, I was just right in the middle of it. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, that was, that was my direction for the time. And 
it was not without its problems. Uh, I, I think that bands are kind of like relationships in, in that if you start from a place of dysfunction, it's probably only going to get worse. And <laughs> I was in a band that was dysfunctional that included a relationship that, that was dysfunctional with my, my high school girlfriend. So it was a little bit of a tough go. And early on in the career of my band, I was sort of the guy that knew how to do things or could figure it out. I, I realize now many years later that I was both a member of the band and sort of acting as the manager of the band. And Juliana Hatfield, the singer of the band was, uh, you know, really not ready to do it on her own. And I think she would, she would be quick to, to agree with that. She was free to nice sort of, bullied her and cajoled her to to get on stage and play her songs and so it was sort of a true democracy early on uh but that changed as the band started to get more successful because as i understand it's the natural course of things there was a lot of focus on juliana who's the voice of the band wrote most of the lyrics she and i wrote the music a lot of the music together but she wrote most of the lyrics that she sang so our band was doomed and I think that Frida and I at the time were not super concerned about that because we figured we would just carry on the momentum and, and, you know, continue to be successful doing something else. So when I was about 24 years old, uh, it would have been in about 1991, uh, our band split up and Frida and I formed another band called Antenna, which we kept our record deal, but it was never quite as successful as you know, we didn't quite have the momentum that we'd had with Juliana. And I continued to play music full time after Blake Babies broke up, but I would say I was doing it with, with measured success. I was, I rejoined the Lemonheads. I'd been the drummer in the band and they had become very successful uh, around the time Blake Babies broke up. So, so Evan Danda, who was one of my close friends was generous to bring me back into the band <clears throat> as the guitar player. So between 94 and 98, I was playing guitar, excuse me, guitar in the Lemonheads, and that became sort of my bread and butter gig. And I made a bunch of records during that period of time. Uh, I made two records with Antenna, two albums. I made an album with a band called Vela Deluxe that I put together. I made a, a solo record and was working on another one. And I hit a point in my life where I was about 30. It was about 1997, 98, around the time the, the last Lemonheads tour was winding down when I had become really frustrated because I didn't see things going the way that I hoped and maybe assumed that they would. I, I reached a point where I was sort of in a snag. I was not as able to make money. I'd had a nice publishing deal that I didn't have anymore. I didn't have a record deal anymore. Uh, I didn't have a big big time rock band like the Lemonheads to play with anymore. And I was still working, but it was sort of diminishing returns. And that was a source of enormous anxiety for me, as, as I think it generally is for people who go into a creative career like that. And uh, I, I had recently met and started dating my now wife of almost 22 years, Heather, who, who was not in the music world. She had gone to business school and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama to be with her. And she, uh, she had a very different 
uh, angle on my life crisis than I did, uh, which was, hey, if something isn't working, you should do something else, which was just mind blowing to me that, that that was even, you know, remotely a possibility that I could do anything besides be a musician. And disorienting, frankly, because I'd never really considered it. And, but her, her angle on it was, well, I know you and I know other people and I know other people who are successful in other jobs and there's not, they're not as smart as you and they don't have any, you know, special skills that make them better suited for, you know, normal people work than you have, you know, why don't you just decide what you want to be when you grow up and just, just get it done. And, uh, Amazing as it probably sounds, uh, that that was uh, an angle that nobody had ever taken with me before, certainly not my parents, who thought of me as being a mediocre student. So the idea that I would go and learn how to do something else, I think, was uh, something that people generally didn't, didn't uh, try on me. But I really wanted a change, and it was very depressing at the time because I was 30 years old, but I, I went back to school. And with the intention of, of trying to become a lawyer. And I hadn't really thought about that much at all. And I had a very, uh, I would say, transformative um, phone call with my then lawyer, who's a guy named David Prossy. And I was frustrated because I was, well, I said I didn't have a record deal. That wasn't exactly true. I was still signed to the record label that Blake Babies had been on, which was called Mammoth Records, which, which had been acquired by Hollywood Records, which is actually the Walt Disney Company, and they had my contract. And I had had a couple lawyers try to get me out of the deal and, and unsuccessfully. So I hired this guy, David Prossy, who was a young lawyer in Atlanta. And when I was sitting with him and trying to come up with a strategy to get out of the record deal, I, I gave him a bunch of ideas that I had from reading the contract. And, you know, maybe this would work, maybe this would work. And at some point, he just stopped and said, have you ever thought about doing this? Have you ever thought about being a lawyer? And, you know, honestly, I hadn't. You know, I, I like the idea of trying to be on the business side of music, but it, it had not occurred to me to be a lawyer. So that sort of planted the seed. So then when I got to the point when I was committed to going back to school, I decided to, to become a lawyer. Okay, John, John did a record, uh, released a record on Flat Earth called Vestavia in 1999 that I just loved. That's lawyer David Prossy. I love the artwork, uh, the recording, the, all the songs. And of course, he's, you know, a great, um, great entertainer. Uh, I'd seen him in all of his, a lot of his other bands. And um, it was, I really liked working with him. You know, he's, he's uh, I mean, you've talked to him. He's, he's smart and funny and quick. He's a dry sense of humor. And, uh, you know, the the lawyer that encouraged me to go to law school years earlier sort of said, well, the, the things you need to be successful in this industry are, are, are really, you know, knowing people and and having years, you know, wearing a different hat in the industry really gives you a chance to build clients and understand how it works and who the, who the people are that, you know, and how to behave, how it works. And, and John had all of that. And so uh, I had just closed the deal actually at... Uh, at a large publishing company. It was a competitive situation. And I got a call from John one day and uh, it turned out he had been uh, signed to that publishing deal when, um, you know, from a previous band and sort of felt like he was stuck there. And he was saying, uh, 
can you help me get out of this deal? And it's like, well, I just closed a big deal. And, and a lot of these people are calling me asking me what other artists I have right now. I think if, if I call them and ask for them to let you go, then they're going to think that, that there's money somewhere. And, and he was sort of saying, look, I want to stay an indie artist and I don't think I'll do another big deal. It's not really the direction I'm headed. And, and so I was like, all right, well, why don't, why don't you write the letter or have Heather, your wife, write the letter and just say, look, this is what my husband's doing and or what I'm doing. And I feel kind of stuck. And would you please let me out? And I gave him the name of the guy I negotiated the deal with and said, this is who you should send it to. And uh, he called me a few weeks later and he was like, hey, it worked. They let me out of the deal. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And so he said, uh, you know, I think I'd like to be a music lawyer. And I was like, yeah, dude, you should do that. My parents felt relieved that I'd found something that I could do in music because I had been a very distracted and sort of indifferent student when I was, especially when I was in high school, because I was so into music and I was so excited about music and excited about the punk scene and what I was doing. So, so they, all they knew that it was, the, and I think I, I, I did and probably do have some degree of, you know, attention deficit. And uh, so I was not a, a great student at the time. So when I came back to them and said, Hey, guess what? I'm going back to school. I want to be a lawyer. They were kind of like, well, what the hell? <laughs> Where's this coming from? And the basic message back was, why would you make such an abrupt life change, you know, when things have gone at least pretty well, you know, it's like, maybe you're, maybe you're in a down phase right now, but things have gone pretty well. But I, I could see that I was not going to recover from where I was with my music career because I am not, how do I put this? You know, I'm not a, I'm not somebody that's gonna that's gonna impact the culture. I, I I knew that I was smart to get together with Juliana and Evan and you know these these amazing singers and you know sort of transformative figures. I've always known I was not one of those. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't like I was just gonna reinvent myself as you know as some kind of fabulous pop star. I can be good in somebody's band. I can play guitar in somebody's band and you know do a really good job. But that's not the career I wanted. So. Uh, I just kind of had to say, look, I got a plan. You just got to bear with me here. But they were not excited about it, and they didn't think it was a particularly good idea. You know, it sort of felt like a, a death at the time because I was really giving something up. I'd been on this track since I was a tiny kid, and I, you know, felt at certain points that I was heading in the direction where I was going to have the career I wanted. Then I just ultimately didn't. And giving it all up and doing something like law school, which really made it impossible for me to keep doing music, just felt like the end of something. But then when I got into law school and actually started doing it and found that I was really pretty good at it and sort of enjoyed it, it was a great feeling. And that led to me getting a job. I didn't have my first real job or first really any sort of job besides kind of being a part-time record store clerk until I was 37 when I got a job at a big white shoe law firm. And I realized pretty quickly that wasn't what I wanted to do. But, you know, my life from there became how do I take this, this education that I have, this license that I have, and turn it into a way to work in music and, and serve musicians. And that became 
my career direction really from then on. And uh, I, I got to the point after several years in practice when I really was working primarily with musicians and creative musicians that I really like. Uh, my first uh, big music client was Bon Iver, And that was when I'd been in, in the law business for a couple of years and, and just got sent a demo tape that just happened to be you know, one of the best records I'd ever heard in my life. That was in 2007. And uh, that really opened doors for me. So I was able to build a career around music as, as a lawyer. And the further I got into it, the more uh, my perception of what my, you know, quote unquote music career had actually been, because I felt when I was 30 years old and making that transition, like I'd really failed, like it was a failure. Like I hadn't, achieved what I set out to achieve, therefore I failed. And it was with great, you know, regret and, and anxiety and, and um, trepidation that I went into a new career, which was actually in a lot of ways a better fit for me. Because I realized once I started working with artists that I developed skills uh, working on my own career that were really applicable. And it was a great relief for me to not have my ego be at the center of it. And when I thought about it years on, when I was, you know, successfully doing something else and had a family and was settled into something, I realized that I'd really gotten to do literally everything I set out to do. You know, I made all these records that I'm still proud of. I got to travel the world. I got to work with amazing musicians. You know, I got to know the, um, the joy of, of making something up and having it connect with people and having people sing my songs back to me, you know, that's, that's something I got to experience. And I'm really grateful for that. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And now I don't think of it as a failure. I think of it as, you know, it was a success that transitioned into another successful career. And that that's given me a lot of courage and perspective and insight and, and, uh, you know, ability to navigate what I do now. And now music for me is something that I do for joy. And, I still play music with people. I still record. I was I was saying earlier that I'm I'm finishing up an album. It's taken me about 15 years to do. <laughs> and and that's fine because it isn't like there's some audience out there that's waiting with bated breath for the next John Strom album. It's just something that I'm grateful to be able to share with people and uh and do for joy while you know the work I do to provide for my family is is all related to music and you know as a matter of ideology has to do with with uh helping people find their way in music and helping people control their rights and own their own their records and and uh and you know make a living uh doing something creative so i think it's a good outcome but it's good to have lived to have that perspective because at the time that i made that big transition i really did feel like a failure and if there's something to take away from that, I think it's, you know, it's probably very hard to, to see that when you're in the middle of it. But I see now that it was, uh, it was, you know, me being forced to step outside of that, you know, story that I thought I was writing and actually, you know, see a path ahead that was, that was different and ultimately better. And my parents have both since then, you know, sort of come back and said, okay, we should have had more faith in you. <laughs> you know?
Thank you, John, for taking time to share this story, and for David for adding his memories, too. John's hoping to release some new solo material maybe later this year. Plus, the Blake Baby's classic album, Sunburn, will be re-released on vinyl this June on American Laundromat Records. You can find links to where to buy that in the show notes. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Redux, is available wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. We've got some great ones coming up. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.